seated. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. And if you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. And we'll uh, provide one to you. You can uh, borrow that. And if you actually don't have a Bible, you can keep it. We would love for you to keep it. Our gift to you. Genesis 4. We're going to start in the middle of the chapter at verse 17. Read all the way down through the end of the chapter. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said, uh, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for Pastor Steve as he preaches the word that he would be guided by your spirit, filled with the spirit. God, I pray for those of us who are listening to the word that we would hear it, know it, embrace it, love it, understand it. God, help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I pray that our souls would find sustenance in the word of God, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Am I awake this morning? (laughs) Well, even if you're not, try to pay attention this morning. We are in the middle of a new series that we're doing, taking a break from our series through Acts to do this Jesus Tribe series and, and um, looking really right now at the first few books of Genesis and trying to uh, see from Genesis a biblical framework, a theological groundwork, if you will, for all relationships. Really, the book of Genesis is in many ways, especially the first part of Genesis, is in many ways about relationships. And the importance of relationships and how God created us for relationships. And so we continue our series. The title of today's message is Two Tribes, or Two Communities, I should say, and Two Ways to Live. Two Communities, or Two Tribes, and Two Ways to Live. The first thing we looked at was the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1-1. And we, we looked at God himself. If we're going to have a framework, a groundwork for relationship, it starts with looking at the Trinity. This is foundational. We need to understand that within the Godhead, there is perfect community expressed. Perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect unity. God is, within his own nature, within himself, a perfect expression of Solid relationships. There's no need for anything else. He's not in need of any person or any other type of relationship. Yet, in an overflow of his character and his love, and for the sake of the magnifying of his name, the glorification of himself, he created a world, and it wasn't just any world, it's a world where relationships are central. And so then we looked at Genesis Continue to look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we looked at the fact that God made man, according to Genesis 1.26, in his own image. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And we looked at the fact that man is relational. Because man is created in the image of God. God is relational, therefore 
man is relational as he images God. Primarily, man is to be in relationship, okay, vertically with God, with his creator. Adam was in perfect union, in communion with God in the garden. Yet, God said this in Genesis 2, 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So, at the same time, man wasn't fully imaging God. Therefore, creation wasn't complete. It was not fully good. It was good, but it was not very good yet until God created Eve. And it was in the creation of Eve, making a helper fit for Adam, someone who complimented him perfectly, that man can fully image God the way he's supposed to and be in, in communion with other human beings. So God created a perfect complement to man when he created a wife for Adam. Okay, and we, we hung out in Genesis 2 to examine that a little bit. But then the next week we went to Genesis 3. And we saw that this perfect relationship, horizontal, and this perfect relationship, I mean horizontal and vertical that God created us for, was forever tarnished and forever um, bent and, 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 and messed up when God's ancient foe, the serpent, who hates God and therefore hates any, anyone that images God, hates the Trinity, hates relationships, hates community. He set out to destroy it. First, he questioned God's love for men when he tempted Eve. And then he brought a distortion of the roles for which man and woman were created into the picture. And man fell and community was broken. So God entered the garden and man was hiding. And man no longer loved and protected his wife as he should. Instead, he blamed her. Relationships were tarnished and broken. But not without hope because in Genesis 3.15 we read of a restorer, a promise that there would come one. One from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And at that point two tribes began. There was a restorer promised. When I think about restoration, my kids know that in my garage I have a table. I kinda, it's kind of my restoration table, if you will. And what they bring me are little toys that are broken. So whenever anything breaks, like Olivia's horse here, which is missing a foot, okay, I tell my kids, maybe kids, your dads are the same way, so go put it out there on my table. They know exactly where to put it. And out there on my table I have this wonderful creation of modern science called super glue and I seek to restore broken things that's my restoration table so I've got Olivia's horse here I've got um, uh, a crown of Emma Cates and all these are a little overdue matter of fact um, and I've got some sort of little contraption that goes with Olivia's domino game and and so these are the things that are currently on my restoration table and so Jesus is promised early on. From the very beginning, there is a promise of restoration. And unlike my restoration, which is imperfect and, uh, and needs super glue, Jesus comes in with a perfect restoration. It's promised in Genesis 3.15. And that's why two tribes begin. There's those who come to the table, who come to God, who pour themselves out to him to lay their life before him and, and call upon his name and trust that God will restore them one day. He'll restore these relationships that are so broken. It begins when we receive Jesus, call upon his name, accept him as our Lord and our Savior. That restoration begins and we are in the process of being restored. First of all, our restoration with our relationship with God begins, but our restoration of our relationship with people also begins. And all through our life, we are being made new and being made into the image of Christ and the restoration continues to take place. Or there's the other tribe, those who reject God, those who turn away from the restorer. That's the seed of the serpent. One tribe, the seed of the serpent, will forever continue in cosmic rebellion against God. This tribe became the birth tribe of all mankind as all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But another tribe, the seed of the woman, would be the, the tribe that puts their hope in the offspring to come. The one who would restore all things. The one who would crush the serpent. Those who by faith forsake their sin, trust in God's redemption and restoration and put their hope in Jesus. Those are the ones who become part of the Jesus tribe. So really, 
from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, there's this theme of two people. Two, there's the wicked and there's the righteous. There's the Jesus, Jesus tribe and there's the serpent tribe. All throughout history, all the way from, from Genesis, all the way to Revelation, we see two people, two lines. The line of the serpent, Satan, and the line of Christ, the line of God, the children of God. Colossians 1.21 talks about this. And it talks about that changing of the tribes. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you who were once part of the Satan tribe, the serpent tribe, verse 22, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Ephesians 2.1 says something similar. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. There is a walk. There is a way. There is a, there is a path that it belongs to the serpent tribe. We were all once part of that. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were all children of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the story of the ages. There's the serpent tribe and there's those being rescued from the serpent tribe being brought into the family of God. Two streams flowing through history. Two teams, two tribes, two families, two ways, two walks. And we see it in today's passage as we begin to look at the lineage of Cain. And we'll compare that a little bit with the lineage of Seth. We'll look at the relationships and how they continue to deteriorate in the line of Cain. And we'll look at the relationships and how relationship is being restored in the line of of Seth. So that's what I want to look at today is to look at these two lineages, to look at these two lines, to look at these two different communities and these two different ways to live. So first let's look at the way of Cain. Let's look a little bit at this lineage of Cain. <coughs> and you guys will have to forgive me again. This stuff will be with me. If you know me, it'll be with me for the next couple of months. So just be patient with my voice, if you will. The way of Cain, the family heritage of the serpent tribe. Now, the first thing I want us to see, and this may seem a little odd when we think about the serpent tribe, but the first thing I want us to see is this, that God's common grace allows men, even those of the serpent tribe, to progress socially. God's common grace allows men, even those of the serpent tribe, to progress they continue to make progress. They continue to move forward. Verse 17 of this passage says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. So they're building cities. He called the name of the city after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad father Mahujael and Mahujael father Methushael and Methushael father Lamech. So Continues. It says, Lamech took two wives. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jab Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and of iron. So men are allowed to continue to continue to make progress despite their sin. God has every right to wipe out the people of Cain immediately. He has every right to just wipe out the line of the serpent, the seed of Satan. This line that is in constant rebellion 
against God. Yet God still showers grace upon them. We call it, or theologians call it, common grace. Now common grace is not saving grace. It's the grace of God, totally undeserved, upon men by which they are allowed to live, to grow, and to experience the basic blessings of life. But it is not saving grace. It is not salvific. All men are recipients of common grace. The fact that you breathed when you were born is common grace. All men deserve death. The physical death sentence of Adam and Eve was delayed for many years. Many, many years. Although they died spiritually the moment they sinned, there was a delay in their physical death and that was grace. It's the same delay each sinner who's born today receives. If you're not dead yet, it was due to God's common grace. It's a general common grace. Common grace is different than saving grace. It's different in the results. It doesn't bring about salvation. It's different in the recipients. It's given to believers and unbelievers alike. So God sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. God allows sinners to grow in enlightenment and intelligence. God in his common grace gives a conscience and, 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 and to, to a certain degree even restraint from men being as evil as they could be. All men are, are evil to the core, but not all men act out evil to the full extent that they can act it out. Some men do. And that, that restraint is because God has written his law on men's heart. And man drowns deeper and deeper in sin, and God continues to give men up and he gives them up to their sin, and that's judgment upon their hearts. We read that in Romans chapter 1. But any delay in that giving up men to their own sin, any delay in that, any delay that allows man to have some sort of moral or inward sense of right or wrong, that's given by God through common grace. Luke six thirty three talks about that common grace. It says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So even sinners, even the wicked, even those part of the serpent tribe are able to do, to a certain degree, good things, although they're not good in God's eyes in the sense that they're not righteous deeds, but good things be, simply because of God's common grace. The reason men aren't out there, all men are out there just stabbing each other and killing each other, although some men are, but the reason the whole world isn't in total chaos is because of God's common grace that allows men to create, to socialize, to organize, to even govern themselves, and to advance. So why does God allow common grace to sinners? Well, first of all, he allows common grace to redeem those who will be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God gives common grace to redeem those who will be saved. Ezekiel eighteen twenty three, God said this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Common grace is given so that men might turn. But also common grace is given to sinners to demonstrate, I mean, to, yes, to demonstrate God's glory and God's mercy. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he made. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the rich young ruler, you remember him? He was part of the serpent tribe. He rejected Christ. He turned away. But when Jesus looked at him in Mark 10, 21, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is common grace demonstrating God's love and goodness even towards unrepentant sinners. But also God gives common grace to sinners to demonstrate his justice. Romans 2, 4 through 5 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? When men don't turn to God and they continue to receive this common grace, it's storing up wrath. Because one day God will bring his judgment upon all sinners. It's also to demonstrate God's glory. Man continues to image God. 
Even sinful men, to a certain degree, through their creativity, through their exercising of dominion over the earth, through the using of their skills and talents, through the using of their intellect, and so on. Even to a certain point, even though all of this in sinners is tainted by sin, especially for those who refuse to submit to God and who are in all-out rebellion against God, even though this is all tainted and marred by sin, they can still, to some degree, manifest God. In his glory, even though they don't recognize it, even though they're unrepentant, recalcitrant, rebellious image bearers. And so we see that here in this passage. We see that in this passage. So first we see that Cain builds a city. So we see man progressing and establishing social centers, communities. Cities were important, very, very important in the antediluvian world, the world before the flood. I'll talk a little bit more about Cain's city in a minute. But regardless, cities mark a certain level of progress, social and communal organization. There is a desire for community. Therefore, God is being imaged to a certain degree. As I said, God's common grace still allows man to image him, albeit imperfectly. And I believe Cain was actually in sin when he builds this city. But I'll talk about that in a second. What else do we see here? Well, let's look at these sons of Lamech. Verse 20, it says... There's a guy by the name of Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So this man, he sort of a, a starts an industry of farming and shepherding and animal husbandry. Jabel's line excels in this field and is known for this. So we see agricultural advances because of God's common grace upon mankind. And then there's Jubal in verse 21. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. So now we see God's common grace in the advancement of the arts. We see music coming into the scene. This individual and his line are known for their music, for their arts. That's common grace. Okay, if you enjoy music, if, if the world enjoys music and art, it's only because God's common grace has been poured out upon them. That if man can paint paintings, it's only because of God's common grace. Verse 22 it also says that there was another um, gentleman who was born. His name was Tubal Cain. And he was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Now we see technological advances. He learned how to harness the earth's elements to create metal instruments out of bronze and out of iron. Now they could have been tools for farming. I don't know. They could have been weapons or whatever else. But this man's line, by, by God's common grace, advances in the area of science and technology. It all sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sounds great if you get up to this point in the passage. Matter of fact, some people would say it sounds like evolution, doesn't it? Man progressing, man getting smarter, advancing in all areas, but this is not evolution. This is simply God's common grace and work. We know these men lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. When we look at the next chapter, you'll see that. These men probably lived to live to be around 900 years old. Each one of them, imagine what progress. Man can make by God's common grace when you've been living for 900 years. They had plenty of time to perfect their trade. Uh, There was plenty of time for technology to grow and to speed forth at an astounding rate. Think about what man, enabled by God's common grace, has been able to do over the last 200 years. Now imagine you've got a 900-year life to work on what you're working on. Imagine if Steve Jobs lived to be 900. We'd have one really good iPad in 800 years, wouldn't we? Okay? There's this common grace upon mankind that enables them to continue to advance. But it's not evolution. Evolution posits the idea that out of utter chaos emerged order that will continue to progress until perfection is achieved. But that's the upside down opposite of what the Bible tells us. Okay? Man's explanation of things, man's explanation for creation is always diametrically opposed to what God's explanation is. You see, the Bible says that everything was perfect and orderly in the beginning. And upon man's fall into sin, everything has begun to unravel. Now, do we need any evidence that the world continues to unravel into chaos? You need any more evidence than just picking up the newspaper or turning on the TV at night? I mean, you hear stories like the man in Florida a couple of weeks back who he took his adopted children and 
and killed them both by pouring acid over them and leaving them on the side of the road in his van? Do we need any more evidence that man is not evolving, but is actually devolving? Do we need any more evidence than what's happening in Japan as we speak? That this world is not progressing to a state of utopia and perfection, but continues to groan. And we need to be praying for the people of Japan. But as Jimmy rightly stated, Japan is one of the most godless nations in this world. We talk about, we looked at the video earlier, worshiping progress, worshiping money, worshiping everything but the Creator. Do we need any more evidence that this world is not evolving into order and perfection? It's still falling. And despite the common grace that allows man to progress in many different ways, man is still falling because despite any advances in technology or society, man is at his core evil and rebellious. Which brings me to my next point. God's common grace allows men, even those of the serpent tribe, to progress socially, but without God's saving grace, man will continue to regress spiritually. First, I want us to look at Cain. What did God tell him he was going to be as part of the curse that was put upon him after he killed his brother, Abel? He said, you're going to be a wanderer. And so what do we see him doing here? First thing he does, I think, is to try to reverse God's curse. I'm going to build a city. Yeah, God, you're going to tell me I'm a wanderer? Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to build a city. And he builds a city. He's still in rebellion against God. Okay? Now, (coughs) cities, it's very interesting in the first several chapters of Genesis. Cities always seem to be sort of connected with sin and rebellion. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that necessarily that cities are bad. Okay? But something about mankind coming together with other mankind, something happens when cities are made. It's, It's, even today, still... When, when, you, when, city, when people come together in, in close quarters in a city, there's, it's easier to control people. It's easier to control thinking. Um, a lot of times what happens in cities, on a lot of different levels, is groupthink. Everyone just thinks the same way. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you see even today in, in political conversations and different things, a lot of times certain um, things are centered in cities. Certain movements or certain positions on different issues. And there's something about cities gives men a feeling of control and power and dominance. But God gives his common grace, allows Cain to build this city. And there's nothing inherently wrong with cities. But cities in the first few chapters of Genesis seem to represent man's attempt to rebel against God to establish their own order and their own power. Now, as you guys know in Scripture, there's always meaning behind numbers. And there's meaning behind genealogies. And to the Hebrew person reading these verses, the number seven was very significant. Okay, the number seven represents fullness or completion. And after the seventh generation of the line of Cain, we come upon a guy by the name of Lamech. Now, this guy named Lamech represents the fullness of the line of Cain. This is what sin has produced. This is what the line of Cain has produced. This is where all their advances has really taken them into deeper, more blatant, more deadly sin. Let's read about Lamech. First of all, in verse 19, it says Lamech took two wives. So Lamech takes two wives. He is therefore the inventor of polygamy. But let's jump forward. <coughs> it says in verse 23, 23, he says to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. He's singing a song. This is poetry. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This man continues to represent a degeneration, a regression, a devolving of men into sin. First of all, as I mentioned, he took two wives. This particular sin becomes a major problem in the Old Testament. Okay? It becomes a major issue throughout the Old Testament story. Polygamy, make no doubt, is sin. Moses is intentionally showing us that this man here is sinning by taking two wives. Now let's talk a little bit about polygamy. Because believe it or not, there's still those today who believe that polygamy is okay. 
Okay, certain factions of the Mormon church believe that. Matter of fact, I think, I've heard, I don't know, I've never seen it. I heard that there's actually a reality show on TV that follows this guy who's a polygamist and has like four wives or something. So believe it or not, polygamy is even still celebrated in our culture today, even though it's outlawed. Now let's talk a little bit about this. This is a sinful practice. Okay, this man clearly is part of the serpent tribe, but this sin has also infiltrated the tribe of Jesus as we go through the scriptures. But it is sin. When godly men commit polygamy, it always brings trouble. First we have Abraham. Abraham ends up having two wives. Then we see Jacob. Jacob had four wives. David had several wives. Eight of them were named, but there were probably more. Solomon had over 300 wives. Always polygamy brings trouble. Polygamy is a rejection of God's word. Think about Abraham. God had made him a promise. I'm going to give you a son. You're going to have, um, you're going to be the father of, of countless people. And, and so he knew that that promise had been given to him. And, and so he knows this promise. He knows this word. Yet he rejects it and takes another wife because he doesn't believe God's going to actually do it the way God said he was going to do it. And polygamy is a rejection of God's word. It's a rejection of God's word here. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. God did not create Adam and Eve and a bunch of other Eves. One and one. God created one man for one woman. That was his design. And so we see that polygamy is a continued rejection of God's word. Polygamy is violence against God's design for marriage. It's a distortion of God's purpose for marriage. Remember that marriage is to image the church. It's to image the relationship of Christ and his church. It mars that image. Polygamy is the beginning of the treatment of women as property. It's the beginning of the treatment of women as property is polygamy. Polygamy was all about power and strength, not love, not complementarity, not oneness. Polygamy was a means for men to create as many descendants as they could to keep their line going, to keep their name strong. It was not about being fruitful and multiplying in a God-magnifying type of way. So we see the continued destruction of relationships in Genesis. We also see an increased level of taking pleasure in sin. So when, when Adam sinned, he was ashamed of his sin and he confessed his sin. When Cain sinned, we at least see that he's sorry, sorry over the consequences of his sin, albeit it was worldly sorrow, not sorrow that leads to repentance. But at least he was sad, and he was sad about being separated from God. But Lamech, Lamech revels in his sin. This guy flaunts his sin. He flaunts it in a song. This is the very first poem or song we have in all of Scripture. And what is it? It's man flaunting his sin before God. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So we see man continuing to put himself in, in God's place as well. Because look at the next thing he says. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He too takes God's word and spits upon it. He takes the word that God had given to Cain and then applies it to himself, putting himself in God's place, taking God's word of protection for Cain and now declaring a new word in God's place, putting himself on the throne. Whereas Cain sought God's protection, Lamech seeks God's provocation. He's just flaunting it, putting it out there. This is the line of Cain. This is the serpent tribe. Increasing even to this day in its rebellion. Not evolving, devolving. You see sinful men take common grace and use it for their own sinful desires. I've heard it, I heard it said, you can go find, you can, especially if you go read the writings of, um, oh, what's I can only remember his last name, Dewey. The guy from whom we get the Dewey Decimal System, but a man at the turn of the last century who was very, very, very influential on um, public education and education in general in America. And he says something along the lines of, man will <coughs> only be able to cure the ills of society with education. And therefore, an attempt was made by governments all around the world to Bring education to children. And this is common grace. 
God gives us the ability to learn and to teach. But man takes the gift and ignores the giver and thinks the gift will solve his problems instead of turning to the giver for solutions. Education and advancement, just like the advancements we see in this passage, education and advancement don't help cure the ills of man's soul. It doesn't make men less of sinners. It just makes them better sinners. It makes them more effective in their sin. So, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the, the common way for someone to steal a, a, a boatload of money was to go take some guns and put the scarfs across their face, go hold up the stagecoach that was on its way to the bank. Or at least that's the way we've been taught in the cowboy movies, right? Okay, but today, today, men get a degree from MIT and learn about computer science and learn how to, how to do things that I can't even imagine doing, and that's God's common grace upon them so that they can hack into computer systems and steal money. You see, education, progress, common grace does not cure the ills for the world. It just makes men more effective at their sinning. It makes us smarter sinners, better sinners. And we see that here in this passage. Look at Lamech. Now, we don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that he probably killed this young man with one of his son's bronze instruments. He used something. The word used here is to slay, and usually in the Old Testament, when the word slay is used, it's, the, the slaying happens with some sort of instrument. It could have been a rock, it could have been anything. But I'm guessing that probably he used one of the advancements of his children and slayed this young man. And then we see him taking the cultural advancement of song and arts. And how does he use song? How does he use art? He uses it to taunt God. Lamech takes the common grace and these gifts of God and uses it for sinful purposes. And it's the same way today. Just turn on your radio dial and you'll find plenty of people of the serpent tribe using song to glorify themselves and to spit on the image of God, some of them more blatantly than others. To flaunt their sin for the world to hear. Go look at the artwork in some of the museums of our country that is allowed to be called art. And you will see men using their art, their advancement, to spit on the image of God, to flaunt their sin openly. Of course, we've seen it in history. Okay, Not only is there high-tech crime, people have split, they learned, men learned how to split the atom. What an accomplishment. We learned how to split the atom so we can blow up a bunch of people. We see it here. Lamech is using the advancements that have been given to him to flaunt his sin. The line of Cain, the serpent tribe, continues to rebel and to regress spiritually. But not so with the Jesus tribe. So the next thing I want to look at is the way of Seth, the family heritage of the Jesus tribe. After this disheartening and disgusting song of Lamech, we have some hope. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain has killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So the first thing I want us to see, the family heritage of the Jesus tribe. God's saving grace is poured out upon those who call upon the name of the Lord. Another child is born. Again, we see in Eve's words her hope, her hope for redemption. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. When Moses writes this and puts Eve's words here and he keeps referring to offspring, it's supposed to direct our minds back to Genesis 3, 15. A replacement has been given for Abel. Matter of fact, this name, Seth, means appointed. The serpent killed the first offspring, but another one has been appointed. Could he be the one? We know that he wasn't the one, but he was the forefather of Jesus. He was the forefather of the one who would crush the serpent. It would be from this line that the Savior would come. And with Seth's line, we begin to see people calling upon the name of the Lord. What does this mean? The Hebrew word here for call can mean several different things. It can mean worship. It can mean proclaim. It can mean summon. It can mean invite. 
or it can mean cry out to. And I think it's all of the above. It's a proclaiming of, of God as king. It's a worshiping of God as central. It's a humble summoning or invitation for God to rule our lives. It's a trusting in, hoping in, faith-filled, crying out to God for salvation. They were calling on the name of the Lord. They were calling on his name, meaning God's nature, God's character. When you see God's name in, in the Old Testament, it's all referring to, especially in the Old Testament, referring to God's character, his nature. And these men are calling out to God, putting their hope in who God is, putting their faith in him alone, putting all the weight of their character, all the weight of themselves in his character and in his nature. Of course, for us today, the full understanding of what it means to call upon the name of the Lord is manifested in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the full representation of God to us. God has made himself known fully in Christ. Therefore, to hope or to call upon the name of the Lord is to hope or to call upon the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ alone. That's the mark. That's the family heritage of the Jesus tribe. Jesus' tribers put their hope in the name of the Lord. And that's the call for all men today. That's the key to leaving the serpent tribe and entering the Jesus tribe. What did Peter call on all men to do in the very first sermon of the church age, Acts 2.21? He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's actually quoting the prophet Joel there. And then Paul proclaims in Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved by grace, through faith, calling upon the name of Jesus. That's how you become a part of the Jesus tribe. And when you do, you're made new, a masterpiece created by God to do good works, to walk in his ways. If you have declared your allegiance to Jesus and have been made part of the Jesus tribe, then you have been made to walk a different way than the world walks, which brings me to my last point. God's saving grace is poured out upon those who call upon the name of the Lord. And those who call upon the name of the Lord grow in grace as they walk with him. Now we don't have time to read all of chapter 5, the line of Seth. But just, so now you, can, you can look at that on your own time. You'll see there how long people lived. You'll see how, long, how old people were when they normally had children. You talk about in your 60s or your 70s having children. So you can read that section, but, but it says this. Basically, after um, Adam had fathered Seth, it says Seth, actually it talks about he fathered a son in his own likeness, Adam did, after his image, and named him Seth. Okay, so the image of God is continuing to go. After his image, and named him Seth. Seth became the father of Enosh. Enosh became the father of Canaan. Canaan became the father of Mahalalel. Mahalalel became the father of Jared. Jared became the father of Enoch. Now, what did I say earlier about the seventh from the line of Cain? Who was that? It was Lamech. The seventh from the line of Seth is Enoch. And so Moses intentionally draws a comparison here. The fullness, the completion, the, the full expression of the sinful line of Cain is seen in Lamech, who flaunts his sin, who rejects God's word. And the fullness of those who walk with, with the Lord, those who call upon his name, is seen in the life of Enoch. So let's look at Enoch real quick here. Verse 21 of chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Enoch's relationship with God was so right, so good, he trusted in the Lord so much, and by grace he was saved that he got to the point where God just took him home early. Pay attention to Enoch. Enoch is the example of what those who come from the line of Seth, from the family heritage of the Jesus tribe, should be like. Lamech blatantly, brazenly increasing in sin and rebellion, but Enoch humbly walking with, calling upon the name of the Lord. Lamech is the fullness of sin and wickedness, but Enoch represents the fullness of righteousness. 
Just as the line of the serpent will continue to grow in sin, so too the line of the woman of Seth, the woman, the line of Seth, will grow in godliness and holiness. Let me say that again. If you are part of the serpent tribe, then it will be no surprise that you continue to progress in sin. You continue to progress in wickedness. Despite whatever common grace is upon your life, despite whatever degrees you get, you will continue to grow in sin because you will continue to be mired in it. And you will come up with new sin to try to get you out of your last sin. That is the line of the serpent tribe. But if you are in the line of the Jesus tribe, then what marks you is that you're growing in righteousness and holiness. You should be growing in your holiness and your desire to please God. Do you know what line you belong to? Look at the progress in your life in regards to sin and holiness. Is sin getting easier? Is your sin getting more brazen and more bold? Are you becoming numb to sin? Is your conscience becoming seared? Are you enjoying your sin? Do you revel in your sin? That's one line. Or do you hate your sin? Is your hatred of your sin increasing? Do little sins that at one time never bothered you, now they bother you a lot. That's a good sign that you're in the Jesus tribe. Little sins that you used to, it's no big deal. Now, it's all about holiness. There is no little deal in God's book. There's no little deal in God's mind. I need to be holy as my heavenly Father is holy. Do you want to do good for the glory of God? Is your conscience becoming clearer and cleaner? Do you find joy in holiness? Do you find joy in holiness? Or is holiness just a task? Or is it a joy? There's two lines. There's two ways to live. There's two tribes. And these are the distinguishing marks of the tribes. These are diagnostic questions to ask ourselves. Enoch walked with God. The Christian life is the journey of the Jesus tribe member. It's a walk with God. It's a constant walk with God. There are two walks. But don't be fooled. The, Jesus, the walk with God isn't like, um, isn't like an elevator. You go push the button. And the elevator doors open and you accept Jesus and you walk in and the doors close and then you can sit back on a comfy padded seat as the elevator takes you to the top. That's not the Christian walk. We're not called to comfort. We're not called to easy believism. You see, the Christian walk is that you accept and you receive Christ and you step into a stairwell. It's got one step after another. And by the grace of God, you take a step And by God's grace, you take another step. And you continue to walk up those steps, step by step. And sometimes it's painful. And sometimes it's hard. But you're moving heavenward. You're becoming more holy. You're becoming more like Christ. And by His grace, He's right there walking with you. He's holding your hand. He's holding your shoulder. He's lifting you up when you don't feel like you can take another step. That's what it means to be part of the Jesus tribe. It is a task. It is hard work. It involves fighting sin and working hard to defeat sin in your life. It's not about just sitting back and, oh, well, I prayed a prayer when I was six. Hit the top floor, buddy. It's a task. We are to examine ourselves. We are to make our election sure. There are two ways to walk. Jude 11, talking about false teachers, says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain. They walk in the way of Cain. Two tribes, two paths, two walks, two ways to live. But ultimately, bloodline is not what's most important. I know we've been looking at lineage and heritage here. But bloodline is not what's most important. Although your family heritage is important. And it is an important means by which God does sometimes and often and usually continue to bring people into his kingdom. Usually children who belong to truth. True families who are true believers, who are truly part of the Jesus tribe, usually they will walk with the Lord themselves one day. But what does it take to become part of the Jesus tribe? Bloodline does not save. Calling upon the name of the Lord is what brings us into this tribe and this family. John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So come this morning, if you've never experienced that restoration, that 
the promised seed of the woman has brought. If you can't say that you desire holiness, then come today. Come. Come to the restoration table. Come, believe, receive, and turn from the tribe of the serpent and turn to the Son, the one true and only way, the tribe of Jesus. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we praise you. There's so many reasons to praise you. Lord, we look around this world, we look at this building that we are standing in because someone, (coughs) by common grace, learned how to build and passed that knowledge on to someone else who then took that knowledge and improved upon it, who took that knowledge and passed it on, and then someone improved upon that. And so we stand here in this world of progress, of iPhones and internet and fast vehicles, and, and we look at this and And Lord, Satan wants to fool us with a lie that says man is evolving into goodness and perfection. But God, we know, we believe your word and that these things are allowed to happen by your common grace. But the common grace of being able to use our intellect to being able to commune with other people, it's not saving grace. And that man will continue to walk in the line of the serpent. Continue to walk in the line of Cain. And will continue to find new and improved ways to sin. Just as we found new and improved ways to build buildings. Man will continue to find new and improved ways to sin. More effectively. Maybe even to, to get it to where we no longer call certain sins sin. So God, we recognize that there is a need in all the world. There's a need across this whole planet. Whether it be in Japan or here in the United States, there is a need that all men have for your saving grace. So God, my prayer today is that all those here would examine their hearts and all of us here would understand how important it is that we, who are part of the Jesus tribe, Share that saving grace, the knowledge of that saving grace with others. Lord, forgive us of our sin. In so many ways, we're still struggling. We're walking up that staircase and sometimes we, we slip, we fall, we bang our knee. Sometimes we want to give up. Sometimes we look behind us and those steps from our past look so enticing. And we just want to go back. So Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you do a work in our heart. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow in grace, to grow in holiness. God, we pray that the gospel would continue to to grow in our hearts. It's not about a moment in time where we receive Jesus. It's about a constant growing in grace, a constant work of your gospel in our heart to make us more like Jesus, to sanctify us. So we pray, Father, for your to encourage us to keep on going, to strengthen those who are weak here today. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory. So we thank you. We lift up this time to you. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our hearts, and we thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.